So there's this quote that we often say. Um, I think it goes all the way back to Benjamin Franklin. Um, and as soon as I say it, you're going to know it. And that is there's only two certain things in this world, and that's death and what? See, you guys all know that, right? And you're feeling the fresh sting of that because April 15th has come and gone. And some of you have extensions. You're going, yeah, I've got to pay my taxes. You know, it's, it's true. It's, it's, it's humorous and sad at the same time. I would um, like to add a third. Like, I want to make that duo a trio. Now, there are a lot of things that are certain in this life beyond uh, death and taxes, but may I uh, point out one in particular that every one of us experiences? That is, the, there's three certain things in this life, and that is death, taxes, and failure. Thanks, Ron. Failure. Um, in almost every category of life, right, we're, we're, we are broken people pilgrim, making a pilgrimage through a broken world. And failure is inevitable uh, as Christians. And I want to talk about that. Now, I want to say one thing is, as far as, a, call it a counterbalance. Um, if you take this message and say, well, failure is inevitable, so why not choose failure? Let's just live in failure. That's not the point of this message, all right? To say that failure is certain and we're going to struggle with it until either death or the resurrection is just a simple statement of truth. Um, but we are to, in this broken state, to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. That is, we're to strive after holiness of life. We're to be holy as God is holy. And, and we're also told in no uncertain terms in Galatians that, you know, you reap what you sow. So to choose failure willingly is, a, is, is to miss the mark. Nevertheless, on the other side, there's just failure, right? Um, any honest assessment of your own life and your own history, you look back, I think almost anybody who's honest would say, ah, there's a lot of failure in my life. Some piles of failure. Um, I mean, how many people, when you talk to a close friend or a close group of friends that trust you and you trust and you're able to just lay out your hearts, like how many of you have failed as a parent? I, I'll raise my hand. I, I feel like I failed my parents or as a parent on a number of occasions. There's times when I've lost my temper. There's times when you, you fail in your marriage. You say things you shouldn't say or, or you do something that's insensitive and, and you just have to say, I, I failed as a spouse. Um, sometimes it's a failure to speak the truth. Uh, a failure to step up and do something you know you need to do, a failure to serve, uh, a failure to, um, to evangelize your neighbor. Like just, I, it's almost in every category we can go, well, yeah, I failed there and there and there. It's just, it's inevitable. It's unavoidable. It is like death and taxes. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a part of life. And as such, I think it's a topic that we have to like, like, like consider because if all of us experience it, and we struggle with it at various levels, then, then the next question is, how do we deal with it? Now, there are, there are failures which are big, huge, and humiliating in public, you know? A young woman finds herself, I should say, a young Christian woman finds herself pregnant in the 1960s and, and is horribly ashamed. It's public. A young Christian man has too much to drink some night, and he gets in his car, and he drives, and he crashes into another car. He's arrested for a DUI, drunken driving, and, and he loses his job. It's a public, humiliating failure. Those are the big ones, public ones, but there are, are failures that are just as bad that are private and secret. Like in this room, there's probably a number of people struggling with addictions, prescription drugs, alcohol, uh, pornography. And it's a struggle. 
and you're like, ah, that's me. I'm, I, I feel that failure all the time. Now, I'm not here to judge or condemn. I'm just simply just here to say that that's the kind of failure we deal with in life. It's part of the fabric of broken world and broken people. So how is it that we deal with it? How do we manage it? How do we deal with brokenness in a redemptive way? A really important question. Now, what drives me to this topic and to spend three weeks on it? Well, one's obvious. That is, everybody struggles at some level. But another reason is just a profound sense of um, watching people that I have known um, deal with it in the wrong way. That is, in a non-redemptive way. That leaves them in this never-ending cycle of, I've tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed. It's a never-entering, futile cycle of ineffectiveness. And you go long enough in this try, fail, try, fail, pretty soon it begins to identify yourself. You live in that identity and you find yourself enslaved to this concept of failure. And you feel like you can't break out. That's, there's ways of dealing with it that will leave you kind of spiraling down in the black hole. And sometimes it gets to the point where people, um, well, do self-destructive things. It reminds me a little bit of uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where you know, when a person realizes their sinfulness, and, and Christians realize at various levels our ongoing sinfulness is that they go through this slew of despond, right? It's this bog, this swamp that people can very easily start sinking into as a result of the piles and piles of failure and sin to the point where they can't get out. It's a, it's a beautiful but powerful image of, of what can happen and yet, at the same time, the gospel has equipped us to move out of that. And that's the beautiful part of it. So the question again is, how do we as Christians deal with failure in a redemptive way? Or let me put it differently. How do we push through failure, it's a statement here, to fruitfulness of life and freedom of life? How do we as believers, where it's certain, like death and taxes, how do we push through failure in a way that leads to fruitfulness and also to freedom. That's, that's the question. And it's a question to which I have meditated on this particular passage in John chapter 21 as an answer of sorts. So without further ado, I want to come with that question, how do we push through failure to fruitfulness and freedom um, according to the, to the scripture? And... <laughs> I'm hoping that you'll take this, and if you're a parent, you'll help your children understand how to deal with failure, because all of us have to do that, as well as for your own, your own soul. So chapter 21. Um, before we get to the verses, verses 15 through 23, I, I think it's important to make a couple of observations about the chapter in general that should help like, make the point a little bit more um, penetrating. One is that, if you notice... And you read along in the Gospel of John, you get to the end of chapter 20, and you realize he could have ended there. He could have ended, let's see a second here. He could have ended at the last verse of chapter 20. So if, if you have your Bibles, then you can turn there. If not, just look on the screen behind me. This is how chapter 20 ends. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that is, everything that I've written so far in the, this Gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the, the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And if you stopped right there, it'd be like, wow, what an amazing gospel. It's like tied off in a nice, pretty little cute bow, and it's all done. 
which is true. It's a perfect conclusion. But then why 21? Why did he add another chapter, which focuses predominantly on the apostle Peter, who has massively failed the Lord in denying him on the night he was arrested? That is, there's a chapter that makes reference to his failure and at the same time calls him to faithfulness and fruitfulness of life. So that's one thing to notice. Many people have called this an epilogue. So, so why is it there? Well, I think one of the reasons, maybe the formal reason, is because without this chapter, the church probably would have been thinking, wow, the apostle Peter blew it big time. Like big time. And this is a disqualifier. I mean, Jesus said, if you, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. And Peter denied Jesus before men. And church probably would have been thinking, well, he is not fit for leadership. Which means kind of, if you will, the formal reason for this final chapter is to say Peter has been restored by the grace of God and by the calling of Jesus. That's the formal reason. But I also see it as somewhat paradigmatic or a good example of how we're supposed to deal with our failure and move on towards fruitfulness. Because in it, it's unmistakable. Jesus makes reference to his failure, but he also makes reference to fruitfulness. So that's the first observation. There's a sense of failure and fruitfulness brought, brought together in this chapter. The second observation is that there's a final miracle that's been given. It's kind of like a dangling miracle. Because if you remember, chapter 20, the very last verse, it says, I've done all these, written all these things so that you may believe. But by the way, there's one more miracle I want to tell you about. And it's a fishing miracle. And it, it goes something like this. And keep in mind, um, when the Gospels describe Jesus' miracles, it's, it's not in a sense of a disconnected show of power. As in, you know, it's 4th of July, there's all these wonderful fireworks, and you're like, ooh, and awe, as if Jesus did, did them as parlor tricks for us to be amazed at. No, they, they always carry with them a deeper meaning, and typically that meaning is associated with what's around it, the context. And I think that's the case here. So here's this, this fishing miracle. Now let me just set it up. Post-Easter, this is probably at least eight days after, if not maybe a couple of weeks after Easter, after Peter's failure. And um, seven of them, Peter and six other disciples, decide they're up in Galilee. Hey, let's go fishing. Maybe they're waiting for Jesus because he has directed them, tell my disciples, go to Galilee and wait for me there. Well, maybe they're bored. We don't know exactly. But they get on a boat and they go fishing, like seven of them. And it says they, they fished all night long. They didn't catch a thing. That is to say... They spent hours and hours and hours of casting nets. Not a single fish. They were skunked. Ron Guffey, you know what that's like. <laughs> Just kidding, brother. I do too. But it's a humiliating thing as a fisherman not to catch a single fish. It is. And so Jesus shows up on the shore. Now they're about 100 yards out, and it's dawn. In other words, the, it's still somewhat dark. The sun is beginning to rise. And they don't recognize him. So Jesus is on the shore, they're on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the boat, and they have all been skunked. And he calls out and he goes, hey, did you catch anything? Right? Jesus is on the shore, they don't know who he is. Did you catch anything? Now, I don't know if you've, for those of you who have fished, you ever notice that people, even if they're not fishermen, ask you that question? Like, hey, did you catch anything? Right? Sometimes you can pull up a stringer of like 15 trout and go, oh, nailed it. Other times it's like, nope, didn't get a thing. It's kind of a humbling reality. So Jesus asks, hey, did you catch anything? And their response is, no, we didn't catch a thing. So he yells out, hey, try the other side of the boat. Now, at this point, 
They don't know it's Jesus, but hey, when you're a, you're a fisherman and you have, have spent hours and hours and hours, you'll try anything to catch a fish. You'll use chicken liver. You'll use, um, yeah, chicken liver. You'll use anchovies. You'll use 30-day-old uh, uh, day day rotting tri-tip. You will. You try anything. Moldy cheese. Doesn't make a difference. If it'll catch, you'll put it out there. So they're, okay. They throw the net out, and all of a sudden they can't even hardly bring it into the boat. So skunked for hours, and then all of a sudden, in a moment's notice, they catch all these fish. And they, John, the disciple Jesus loved, the text tells us, said, it's the Lord. Like, this is a miracle. He's just, I mean, we're talking about a distance of about four feet, you know, between one side of the boat and the other side, maybe five feet. Throw the net out. And he goes, it's the Lord. And you know what Peter does? It says that he, he grabbed his coat, and he immediately jumps into the water. And he swims 100 yards about 100 yards, gets on shore and realizes Jesus is like fixed him breakfast. Still serving his people, still serving his disciples. He's fixed him breakfast, fish are on the fire and charcoal. So that's the miracle, right? The, the abundance of fish, nothing to everything. Now, what is the deeper truth in this final miracle? I think it's mission-oriented. I think it has to do with principles of fruitfulness, if you remember back to the Gospel of uh, Mark, chapter 1, verse 17, he tells his fishermen, listen, I'm going to take you and make you fishers of men. He uses it, fishing as a metaphor for missions, for I'm going to use your lives and your ministry as fishermen to actually build my kingdom. So I don't think it's by accident that the very last miracle, at the last chapter of John, isn't somehow mission-oriented. In the same way that Matthew ends his gospel with, you know, going to the all nations and you know, baptizing and teaching and so forth. That here there's this mission, only it tends to be more pastoral, dealing with the flock that already believe. So there's this mission sense, and what does it teach us? What does this uh, great catch teach us? Well, it teaches us um, the truth of John 15, that apart from me you can do nothing. You can do everything you wish. You can try and fish, you can try and hunt and, and bring people into the kingdom, but if I'm not in it, those who build a house labor in vain. I think, I think that's part of the theological point. His fruitfulness is, at the end of the day, rooted in God's grace and power. We have to trust that he's, he's doing it. But combined with that grace lesson is a lesson of obedience because, and simple obedience. Because they, Jesus said, cast the net on the other side. And they simply, in a simple act of obedience, threw the net on the other side. And what do you know? Fruitfulness. So, again, two basic observations coming into our text. One being that this chapter has to do with failure combined with fruitfulness. And then we have this. Um, miracle that talks about fruitfulness rooted in both grace and obedience. So with that said, and I'll come back to it, let's look at our text with the question, how do we push through failure? How do you push through failure? How do I push through failure um, towards fruitfulness and freedom? That's, that's the question, and there's going to be four parts to this answer. The first part of the answer comes out of a question that Jesus asked Peter. Again, this final chapter is focusing in on Peter, the rock upon which Jesus would build his church, the head apostle, if you will. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The question that Jesus asks is a, a question that would gently, pastorally, reach into the core of his soul and touch his failure. Not for the sake of condemning, but for the sake of healing. He asked him the question, Peter, 
his number one guy, his wingman. Do you love me more than these? It's a comparative question. Now, more than these, what, what exactly is Jesus talking? What's the question? Well, there have been three main, if you will, interpretations. One is that uh, more than these might refer to Peter's vocation, right? Um, do you love me more than things associated with your vocation of fishing, like the, the gear and the getting out there and the thrill of the catch? And it's, it, it's possible. People have loved their vocations. People have loved fishing more than other things. It's a good Brad Paisley song about that, you know. Do you love fishing or do you love the girl? And in the chorus, it's kind of funny. It says, I'm going to miss her, right? <laughs> country song. Gotta love country song. I don't think that's really what's, what's in mind, that, that he's asking, is it, is it your vocation of fishing more important than me? The second interpretation runs, runs like this. It's like maybe Jesus is asking the question, do you love me more than you love these disciples around you? I mean, friends are important. And at this point, they've been together for over three years. They're a band of brothers. They know each other. They've been everywhere together. They've gone through the fire together. And it's possible. It's possible for people to love personal friends and relationships more than Jesus because sometimes people are willing to accommodate their faith or compromise their faith for the sake of maintaining friendship loyalty. So it's possible that that's the answer. But in light of the context, I think there's a third possibility that is more um, likely. And that is this. What Jesus is asking Peter is, Peter, do you love me more than these disciples, these other six disciples you were fishing with love me? In other words, does the degree of your love exceed that of their love for me? Now, the reason I think that that's the better interpretation is, is two reasons. One, Jesus asked this question three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? There's something else that happens in triplicate, and that is Jesus denies him three times. The connection would be unmistakable. Jesus, or excuse me, Peter denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. So by asking the question three times, there is an immediate allusion to his failure which would have taken him back to the, the night of Jesus' arrest, like when he blew it. And if you go back to the night that he blew it, you realize that he made a solemn vow to Jesus. Jesus predicted, listen, tonight, when they come and capture me and put me in chains, all of you are going to fall away. He's talking to his band of brothers, his best friends, saying, all of you are going to leave me. You're going to forsake me. You're going to bail on me. And Peter says this full of a sense of self-confidence and fortitude. He says, though they all fall away because of you, that is, who's they all? The rest of these disciples, these clowns. <laughs> I will never fall away. It's emphatic, intensive. I will never fall away. I am your wingman. I will stand by you to the very end. I am the Navy SEAL behind you, and I will not go anywhere. I'll die for your sake. Like, that's how much self-confidence and sense of moral superiority he has over and against his brothers, more than these. So you can understand why when Jesus asks this question, he's asking the question of, okay, so, so do you have a greater degree of love for me than the others? Remember when you said what you said? He reaches in and he touches his failure. He touches his failure and brings it out in a gentle, 
way of a shepherd. So what does this teach us about, if you will, how to press through to fruitfulness and freedom? Well, the first answer to that is, requires us to back up a bit. And one is, and everything at the end of the day when it comes to progress in the Christian life has to be oriented towards Jesus and has to come from a heart of faith and trust. The first thing it teaches us is that um, pushing through your failure to that place of fruitfulness and freedom requires belief that moves you toward the grace of Jesus, not away from it. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because what's the tendency when we blow it? <laughs> do we want to go be around the people who knew we blew it? No, our tendency is that like Adam in the garden, right, blew it big time, and God comes walking into the garden, and what does he do? He's like backing away, <laughs> Right? Isn't that typically the response when you know that you have failed? You tend to recede. You tend to isolate, to move away. You don't want to be in a place that would amplify your sense of guilt. So you pull away and you hide. Well, in light of Peter's failure, and he feels it, it's fresh. What does he do? He hears that the Lord is on the shore, and what does he do? Busts into the water. He swims 100 yards to be with Jesus. That's the heart of somebody who knows something about Jesus that he wants. That is, he didn't run away from the Lord in shame. He ran towards the Lord with a fresh sense of his shame and failure. Why? Because he knows something about him, something that he trusts. He knows that Jesus, he's seen him in ministry. He watched him die on the cross for sins. He knows that that is the heart of God towards people who are repentant and come to him. That is, he knew that Jesus would be forgiving and merciful and gracious and accepting. And I think he also moved towards Christ knowing he's the source of true healing and forgiveness. Any attempt to deal with your failure that does not begin with trusting the Lord and moving toward him ends up going in the wrong direction. That's directly applicable, you know, in our failures. And some are in the midst of it right now. I just know. Talk to somebody last service at the end. Is, how are you going to deal with this? Are you going to hide? Isolate? Run away? Better way? Beeline it towards the Lord, towards his gospel, and to the community of believers that God has given you as a help. So that's, if you will, one of the requirements for pressing through is you can't run away in shame. You have to run toward a God, a Jesus who is gracious and merciful and heals. The second one is really the flip side of the same coin. I realize I left the verse out, but that's John 21, 7. Yeah, 7. Second one is the flip side of the coin, is that in order to push through failure in a redemptive way requires human pride to be broken and human, or excuse me, humility to be nurtured. Now, when Jesus asked this question of, of John, and again, John, Peter, uh, three times, again, the sense is to remind him of, gently remind him of his failure three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times reminding him, I, I, I denied him. Not once, not twice, but three times. Now he's asking me three questions. So he just, again, reminds him of, of how much how broken he was in that, that moment. And I think Peter's response is the response of a truly broken man. 
Now, you could take each of these three responses as, in a progressive way to say that, well, he didn't get at the first question, but he got at the third for the, after the third question. But it ends the same way. I'm inclined to believe that from the very outgo, the first time he responded, he, he, he responds to Jesus like this. Lord, you know I love you. Like, you, you, you know everything. You, you know me. You, you know my failure. You know that in the moment where I should have been there for you, I wasn't. But I love you. I mean, I was the first one to jump out of the boat to swim to you. Not because I needed a swim exercise, but because I wanted to be with you. Like, you're my life. Which tells you that Failure and love for Jesus are not mutually exclusive. You can still love Christ and fail. But he, he beelined it towards Jesus, and I think this came from a place of broken pride. And you know what? Um, if there's any enemy of, of change, if there's any enemy of pushing through failure, it's our own pride and ego. It keeps us from seeing the truth of the gospel. It keeps us from seeing our own need, the fact that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. We think more of ourselves when our pride is there. And in order for us to be fruitful in the kingdom and in the gospel and in ministry, there needs to be just a brokenness about us, an honesty about us. Um, pride is no longer um, the operative principle of, of life or self-protection, right? That comes from a place of, of being broken. And that brokenness needs to be nurtured once it happens. It's, that is... When God genuinely breaks you, you got to remember your failures. Now, that sounds weird, you know, when you ask a question or we would ask a question, how do, I, how do I nurture a sense of humility so that pride doesn't grow up again and blind me? Well, one answer would be, this is going to sound so crazy because we live in a society that wants to uh, live in the power of positive thinking, is remember your failures. Jesus actually, in asking this question three times, is reminding him. In asking him, do you love me more than these? There's a subtle reminder of how you blew it. Here, I can hear some people going, wait, wait, wait a second. Are you telling me we should remember our failures? Like, is that supposed to be our focus? Well, yes and no is the answer. If the purpose of, of looking at your failures is to just keep down your sense of guilt and how horrible you are, well, then no. In my opinion, that's a manifestation of human pride anyway, because it comes from a place of wanting to self-atone. Well, if I beat myself up enough, well, then I'll feel good about myself. That, that puts you in the driver's seat again. It's just another manifestation of pride. That is, a truly broken, proud person is not defensive. They don't justify. They don't beat themselves up. They simply acknowledge my failure. This is what it is. So there's a, there's a redemptive purpose in remembering how you've screwed up. I don't think we should forget to accept forgiveness and to know that Jesus died for every one of your sins, past, present, and future, is, is key. But forgiveness does not mean forgetting. Uh, the Apostle Paul had no problems looking at the uh, writing to the um, Ephesians and saying, guess what? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Like, could you not remind me of that? Remember who you used to be? You were like carried away by all your desires. You were corrupt, body, soul, and spirit. Wait, 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 don't, don't, don't remind me. Then he explicitly says, remember, Ephesians chapter 2, remember that at one point you were separated from the Lord. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You had no hope and were without God in this world. It's like these are all reminders of who they used to be. 
There are entire books of the Bible that were meant and intended to remind people of failure. First and Second Kings being a notable example. Why are we in exile? Why are we under the weight of God's discipline? Well, First and Second Kings tells us we screwed up. So, no, there's a redemptive purpose in, in remembering. It has a, a way of warning us. At the same time, it humbles us to a place of grateful dependence. You know, I, I just tell you personally from my own life, when I can, because we're moving forward in life, the car's moving forward, I remember in my head that I have to keep a rearview mirror where I can look back and see how I failed. You know what that does for me? It magnifies how gracious God is. I remember, man, God, I, I don't deserve your love. It has a way of humbling you, of dispelling that pride. But if you don't remember failure, and again, I want you to think about that. Does the Bible encourage me to consider my failure? I, I think it does. But if you fail to remember, to me that's like creating the perfect environment for the toxic black mold of pride to grow. Unless we're constantly nurturing a sense of humility and breaking down of our pride by remembering who we used to be, the failures that we still do. I mean, there's still a redemptive purpose in failure. Peter learned a lot in this lesson. He learned that he wasn't as strong as he thought he was, and that's a good thing. And it's a good thing for him to remember. So here's part of the path, again, in a redemptive way of dealing with failure. Is in the middle of it, pushing through, um, requires a belief that moves you towards grace of Jesus, not away. The breaking of human pride and nurturing of humility. And then the third one is just the sacrificial service to others out of love for Christ. I realize I advanced that slide a little too fast. Um, because each time after Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. A broken yes. Um, he says, feed my sheep or feed my lambs. Tend my sheep, feed my sheep. In other words, he's calling to, to, to acts of service. Like, then work to the well-being of, of my people, of my lambs, of my sheep. My, that's what the sheep are. They're the people of the church. Your way, Peter, of expressing that you love me is going to be how you manifest your love to other people. And to me, that's part of the progress of moving out of a very self-absorbed life. Failure tends to turn all eyes inward. We think, woe is me, how could I have possibly done this? Whereas service gets your eyes off of your own heart, your own failure to see the needs of other people. That's part of the healing process. Right here, he's saying, listen, feed my sheep. Now, I recognize, as I sh I'm sure you do, that the Apostle Peter played a very important, unique part in the church's life. None of us operates in the position of being the rock of the church upon which Jesus builds a church. But there's another sense in which that ministry of caring for each other, putting the needs of your family, your church family, your spiritual family first before your own, is the responsibility of every one of us, right? We're given gifts. We're called to minister according to our own strengths and abilities in various ways, formal, informal, in private, as well as in public. Like, that's what we've been called to do, and it's an expression of our love for Jesus that we actually care for the things he cares about. And the author of the Gospel of John tells us actually in the first epistle of John that unless you actually love people tangibly and selflessly, there's a question as to whether or not you love God. Those two are so uh, inseparably tied. He says, 
He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, a, a failure to get out of yourself and, and, and care for the needs of other people is a sign that maybe you don't really love the Lord at all. Those two are inseparable. So if you love Jesus, it's going to show itself in how you serve other people. And again, I think that's part of the healing process. Get your eyes off of yourself and onto other people. Rather than just living in the mire of your own failure. Now, at this point, i got to pause because I think um, there's some faulty thinking about, out there about, about, about failure as it relates to the Christian. It's, I think it's easy for people to feel, and I've met people and seen people like this. To feel like, well, because I blew it, because I failed, I am no longer qualified to serve and love. So in a sense of guilt and failure, they sideline themselves from active service in the community of faith. And I think that is altogether categorically wrong. Now in one sense, to qualify, it is true that certain kinds of failure may disqualify you from positions of leadership. But as long as there is repentance and humility and broken pride, that should never sideline you from loving people. Can you imagine if we waited till we had no failure in our life to love people? <laughs> Nobody would love anybody. No, we're broken people. We deal with failure all the time. There is never a time to be sidelined from serving. As long as there is a repentant heart there. No, God calls you to love, love constantly in the state of your brokenness. At times when you fail. Not just when you're feeling good about yourself. So if you're a person who has sidelined yourself in here because of something in your past. It could be a divorce. Um, it could be rebellious children, it could be a moral failure, don't think that, that precludes you from loving and serving the needs of others. That's to be a constant, right? And it's part of the process of, of moving forward into fruitfulness. And then the, the final one is that pushing through this, this failure to fruitfulness and freedom requires embracing, like, Jesus' path for your life. And this comes out in the, in, in one sense it's kind of humorous, and in another sense it's so true to humanity. Like, so Jesus makes this prediction about Peter's future. It, we already read it, but let's just read it again for sake of uh, reiteration. He says, truly, truly, that's an emphatic way of introducing what he's about to say. He says, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you were old, that is when you were in control. But when you were old, that is later on in your life, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. That is the path that's going to be guided by somebody else. Verse 19, a parenthetical comment, like this is this cryptic statement he makes. He says this, he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So he's talking about martyrdom. He's going to die for the sake of the sheep and for the sake of the lambs. He's going to follow on the path of, of Jesus. Well, Peter responds, he, he turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So at this point, they're walking along the beach. They finished breakfast. They're walking along the beach, and John is behind them, and Peter's talking with Jesus. And Jesus is like, guess what? Um, you're going to stretch out your hands, and um, uh, you're going to die. 
And Peter turns around, and he sees John walking behind him. And he said to the Lord, this is verse 21, sort of, what about him? <laughs> what about this man? And Jesus responds, if, if, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. <laughs> Again, in some ways it's comical, and in other ways it's, 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 it's just so true to humanity. Imagine, and now Jesus' words, you will stretch out your hands. That is terminology that is reminiscent of crucifixion. And if that's what Jesus is saying, listen, the, the time is coming where you're going to be carried where you don't want to go. You're going to stretch out your hands. It's basically you're going to die the same way I died. You're going to give your, you're, you're going to give your life as a, as a crucified man. And church history tells us he did. He, just, he died in Rome by way of crucifixion. Can you imagine getting that laid on you? <laughs> but guess what? In your future, crucifixion. You saw what they did to me. <laughs> They're going to do that to you. I, now, just as a kind of an aside, if that was me, I'd be like, hey, could you, that's just too much information for me to dig in. I don't want to think about having to be crucified later on. I would be scared to death. I'd be like, worse, way worse than going to the dentist, right? <laughs> it's horrible. Anxiety. But Jesus never gives us these statements to make us fearful. I mean, at the end of the day, G Peter was crucified. He followed the course of his life. But his response is so typically human, right? Comparison. Looks at John and goes, hey, what about him? Like, that question comes out of a sense of unfairness. Like, wait a second. If I have to go through this, doesn't he have to go through this? And what is Jesus' response? He doesn't answer the question. He doesn't deal with fairness or anything else. You know what he says to him? He says, what is that to you? In um, uh, colorful paraphrase of that statement, I think Jesus is saying it's none of your dang business. What happens in his life? None of your business. You follow me. And notice he says, um, if it is my will that he remain till I come. In other words, if it's my will for him to live 2,100 years until I come back, well, that's what's going to happen. And of course, that's not what he means, which is why there's some clarifying comments after. It's, it's, it's not your problem. Right? You follow me. I have a course for your life, and that course is going to end in crucifixion where you're going to glorify me by the way you die, and you're going to feed and tend my sheep in the process. He's called to a, to a custom-made path, and it needs to be embraced rather than comparing yourself to the paths of others. And to me, there's, a, there's, there's wisdom in this because that's what we do. Everybody's just walking a different part of life, and each of us has our own unique challenges. Some are the same, some are very different. And it's very easy to look over the fence and thinking the grass is greener over there and wondering why you're on the side where everything's brown while somebody else's grass is green. Like, door doesn't seem fair. And Jesus' words to Peter, as it is to us, like, listen, eyes forward, you follow me. But how easily we fall into the same trap, and it leads to depression, and it leads to a self-absorption, and selfishness. So, for example, one person works his fingers to the bone at a job he doesn't like, and he barely is able to make ends meet. And somebody else who works a leisurely job of maybe 40 hours a week in a leadership position has more than enough to go on expensive vacations and have no worries about financial responsibilities. And it's easy for the one with little to look at the one who has a lot and says, this isn't fair. Grass is greener on his side of the fence. How come I don't get to experience that? Or on the heels of Mother's Day, I venture into this somewhat carefully. 
it's really easy for a couple who have not been given the gift of being able to have children to look at another couple who have had children and to think this is unfair. Why am I called to this path of barrenness instead of fruitfulness? It's a real thing. And you know what? The vice versa is also true. I have met parents who have a nest of rebellious teenagers who are looking at couples without kids going, the grass looks greener right now over there. (laughs) It's always greener on the other side. Your path is the one that looks dry. But at the end of the day, it's not about It's not about you living in luxury. It's about you learning what it means to live by faith and setting your eyes forward and following Jesus' path in your life. And instead of looking around at the have and have nots, it's looking forward and saying, all right, Jesus, you've called me to this. There were people in last service who have cancer. We talked to him before service, and it's like he's been called to a path of struggling with cancer, and hopefully there will be a cure and there will be remission, but there's no guarantee of that, but others aren't going to struggle with that. And part of the freedom of embracing that, Lord, you have designed my path by your will. And I'm going to set my eyes forward without comparing myself to other people or giving in to the lie that somehow this is unfair. And I'm going to follow you and I'm going to embrace the story that you have for my life as my sovereign king. We sing that line in that song, Jesus commands my destiny. In Christ alone, he commands my destiny. Did you believe that? Well, if you do, then you embrace the story he has for you. So to me, this is um, the way in which this chapter unfolds provides for us a helpful way of, of dealing with our failures, which every one of us, like death and taxes, are going to struggle with. Of dealing with in a way that is redemptive. Of, of making sure when you face failure, you run towards Jesus and his grace, not away in shame. Making sure that one of the things you have to do daily is deny yourself. That's a form of pride breaking and follow him and nurturing that sense of humility. Like the only thing I am or ever will be is because of the grace of God. Of getting out of your self-absorption with the failure and just saying, I'm going to serve. I'm going to wherever, whatever that looks like for you. I'm going to give myself to focusing on the needs of other people rather than myself. And at the end of the day, recognizing that the path that God has for you as a believer is unique to you. And don't compare yourself to other people. It is just a way down. You look at Peter, this is how he dealt with it. And you know what? He ended up changing the world. His close friend and associate, Judas, had a very different ending. He failed too in a massive way. One might say equally massive way. But he dealt with it in a non-redemptive way. And he ended up with a noose around his neck. So here you have, brothers and sisters, the, 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 the path of dealing with failure. It's, it's not rocket science. But at the same time, I fully believe that as, as we deal with our failures and struggles in this way, the way it moves towards Jesus and humility and all this stuff, I, I believe that God is going to use your life like a net. And he is going to scoop up the fish. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna meet the needs of people through your life. And the world is going to be changed because of you. If you deal with failure in a proper way. That's the question. The question isn't, are we going to experience failure? That's a given. The question is, how are we going to deal with it? That's the question. So if you're, I just want to make this uh, invitation uh, known. If you're here right now, 
and you're thinking, man, this is me, and I'm just hitting me where I live, and maybe it's not. That's okay. If it's hitting you where you live, can I encourage you to talk to somebody? Don't, don't walk away from here. Let this, the voice of the Spirit of God through the Scripture um, dissipate. But, but do something about it. Talk to, to Adam. Talk to myself. Talk to one of the elders or talk to Jeannie um, down here. Um, talk to Val. Talk to other women that, Veronica, just talk to somebody and say, hey, this is my struggle and I just, I, I, I don't want to run away in shame. I want to run towards something. So um, can I encourage you to, to do that? Don't, don't, don't let whatever's happening in this room this morning um, leave you. And if, if, if it's not you, then you know what? That's, that's great. But hopefully when you find yourself struggling, you'll remember this and to deal with, with f- failure in a, a redemptive way that pushes through the failure, doesn't run away from it, all right? Lord, we are uh, grateful for your kindness towards us and the gentleness that you showed Peter and um, the gentleness that you show us each day and reminding us of our, our failures and our, um, our weaknesses, but not for the sake of increasing guilt, but for the sake of bringing healing and humility and, and life and hope and new faith and new lessons. I pray for the souls of everyone you've brought in here who at various levels deal with this issue and would ask that you give each person courage to do things in the right way, moving forward in faith in Christ. And if there are souls that need to bring something out into the light, I ask that there would be a, a courage to do that this morning. So, uh, Lord, we thank you for speaking to us and for giving us your word. And uh, would ask you continue to do your work through your church family, that the net might be full of people in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.